sweeps all season. Two sweeps in a span of like three years. They both came against first place opponents. Good morning to you. Good Friday morning. I'm Dan Kovacevic of DK Pittsburgh Sports. This is Daily Shot of Pirates. It comes your way bright and early every weekday if you're into football and or hockey. I also offer Daily Shots of Steelers and Penguins where you found this. Pirates 5, Brewers 4 in 10 innings. A sweep of first place Milwaukee. Semi-pseudo, quasi-not-really revenge for about a decade and change of torment up at Old Miller Park. And, you know, it happened in a manner that gives you at least a little bit of hope. And I don't think it should be more than that. A little bit of hope that the remainder of this season, the 2022 season, the one that management essentially declared doesn't matter, will matter to the participants on the field. Because when you see how the Pirates took this series, coming back again and again and again, and diving and laying out for catches like Ben Gamble's late in the game yesterday that bailed out Dwayne Underwood, like Brian Hayes' unbelievable 5-3 double play that got Colin Holderman out of his own jam And then all the quality at bats, wearing the pitchers down, situational hitting like Hayes in the 10th, moving Brian Reynolds from second to third with a fly ball to right field. That's that's good stuff. That's almost as good as Reynolds having hit the double that brought home the automatic runner to Capita Marcano with the tying run. The fact that the Pirates win on a wild pitch by Matt Bush, it makes for something of an anticlimactic ending, but it it really shouldn't because they did a lot of things along the way throughout the series to earn the outcome that they got. In particular, though, the persistence. And that, understandably, is what Derek Shelton liked the most about it as well. No, I mean, it it cannot be overstated. I think it goes to, you know, creating opportunities. And we've talked, you know, at length about one play, one thing happening. Uh, You know, tonight, I think it was multiple. You know, the fact that we were able to continue to battle. I mean, even at the the end, I mean, Underwood didn't have his best command. But to get out of that inning with it just being one, uh, I think was really important. But uh, we did a nice job throughout this whole series of creating our own opportunities and creating our own breaks. And I think, you know, that's how you win close games. Now, you know what I'm going to say to this, right? Yeah, it's okay to win. It just is. It's okay to win. It's not a crime. They're not tanking. There's nothing to do toward next year's draft because that'll be the first time there's a lottery in place. So you could have the ugliest possible situation in which you lose a ton of games. You're sitting there looking at what? Whoever teams in the American League that you never otherwise pay attention to, the Texas Rangers and whatever, and you say, oh, man, if only they would have a worse record than that team, they're going to end up getting so-and-so pick. Can't even do that this year. Can't even do that. Might as well win. Might as well get better. Might as well get used to the feeling. Not used to. 
get accustomed to? What's the term I'm looking for here? Learn the feeling of winning. Gain the confidence that's needed to walk into a setting like at Dodger Stadium and say, yeah, we can beat those guys. Or even a home series against Gasp the Brewers. Next thing you know, the Pirates will actually take a series from the Cardinals. That's the kind of thing that begins to change stuff. This portion of Daily Shot of Pirates is brought to you by our friends at North Shore Tavern. That's directly across Federal Street from PNC Park. It's home of Steak on a Stone, an eating experience, underscoring the word experience. The steak is brought to you partially cooked on an 800-degree stone, and you do the rest. It's a ton of fun, it's a great meal, and it's a baseball atmosphere like no other in Pittsburgh. North Shore Tavern, right across Federal Street from PNC Park. If you listen to my work or read it often enough, you'll know that I'm not real big on living in the past. That's not my thing. I've been doing this for a while, but you don't hear me say, oh, this reminds me of something from da 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 I just, I don't believe in it. And like, not just in work, but in life. I I'd much rather live in the today. That said, I'm going to throw out a couple of parallels for you that I think will resonate with listeners both old and young. One of them predates my existence, okay? (laughs) Just to prove that this isn't something personal. But it goes to the late 50s because Bill Mazeroski has told me this story about how the Pirates of that decade, who were absolutely pathetic for the first few years. All they had was Ralph Kiner and a whole bunch of nothing. Then they pick up Roberto Clemente in the Rule 5 draft, and yes, he was a Rule 5 pick, and they end up starting to feel good about themselves. They get to 1958, and they have a little bit of an uptick, and they start feeling it a little bit. Then there's kind of a backward step in 59, but in 60, obviously, they ended up taking down the mighty Yankees on Maz's home run. In 1988, 30 years later, Bob Walk loves to talk about this one. The Pirates have been struggling, again, for the better part of that decade. Certainly nothing at all like the previous decade. They started to win. They started to feel good about themselves. And they did it, strangely enough, late in the season after they picked up Jim Gott in a trade. Jim Gott was this really vocal leader type, but also was a really good closer. And they all really got behind... This one goal that they'd set for themselves, a win total, and they hit it with just a couple of days left to go in the season. What do you know? Now, 89 didn't go all that great, but 90, 91, and 92 sure did when it all came together. And a lot of those players on those three division championship teams, by the way, the Pirates' last division championship teams, will point back to the 88 season as the one where they got it going. Following me here? Okay, now let's go to something a lot more recent. And that was, of course, the earlier portion of this past decade. The Pirates lost 105 games, fired John Russell, brought in Clint Hurdle, had a little bit of a a bounce back beginning In 2011, they started to feel good about themselves because they started to win games that they weren't winning in the past. They did that ultimately 
in 2013 and then made it to the wild card, the blackout game, and all that other stuff here. But even there, the pattern applies because the best of the Pirates teams came in what year? In 2015. Now, the fact that they got shafted a hundred different ways by this stupid one-and-done wildcard format that should have been dead and buried forever ago, but at least is now dead and buried. That was a 98-win team. That was one of the better teams in franchise history. Seems hard to believe it was only seven years ago, but it was. My point, and my goodness, it's been my point since the first pitchers and catchers reported to Bradenton. This season does matter. You don't discard it. You don't waste it on Yoshi and Van Meter and whatever other nonsense. It's not a test tube for the general manager. You need to learn how to win at some point. I'm not talking about payroll. I'm not talking about anything insane like that that would derail the development of the prospects and whatever else here. I'm talking about just winning the bleeping game right in front of you. That's what the Pirates did the last three days. They attacked the games that were right in front of them and won them. They didn't do it with payroll. They didn't do it with uh, stunting this guy or that guy. For the most part, Shelton was allowed to put out the best players he had. And what do you know? Like magic, they were able to compete. Hmm, when we come back, J1Q. Today's J1Q comes from Rachel, and she asks, So while Michael Chavis's splits are bad, they're not that bad, so why are we platooning this guy why she asks <laughs> i can't turn down a question that comes with that kind of emphasis at the end rachel the real answer i think has nothing to do or at least very very little to do with his splits that is the answer that the pirates put forth but they have found reasons to rotate guys with him, whether it's at first base or anywhere else, rather than just accepting that he's been one of their most productive hitters. And in fact, he's been a 333 hitter since the All-Star break with some pop and some clutch and everything else that you'd like to get out of all of your bats. And yeah, you're right. His splits are, are not all that bad against Righties, he's batting 219. Not great. Against lefties, he's batting 282. That, in the modern scope of things, is really, really good. And to the stance that you've taken, Rachel, no, even the 219 isn't all that bad when you remember that the current median batting average in the majors is, believe it or not, 239. So he's just 20 points below that on what's his weaker side. I don't think that's got anything to do with anything, though. I really don't. If you put a gun to my head and said, why are they not playing Chavis every day? Why do they not take him seriously? I'll give you one answer and one alone, and that is that he's only walked 13 times in 288 plate appearances. 
And these guys, meaning from management on down, can't stand it if you can't walk. And that centers on, that stance, the hitting coach, Andy Haynes. That's what he brought with him from Milwaukee, and that's what he took to Milwaukee from the Cubs. He believes in this team-wide concept of running up pitch counts and going at starters, and they're all very, very proud of it when it happens. And you know what? They just did that to the Brewers, and it worked. So I'm not about to spit in anybody's faces over it. But when you're going after individual players, when you're judging individual players, principally by whether or not they walk because it might or might not fit into your team scheme against a given starter or a given opponent or a given set of splits, that is not exactly player-centric anything. And yes, I'm borrowing that term directly from Ben Charrington. That's what he talked about when he became GM, before he'd presided over a single game, that things were going to be player-centric. Development would be player-centric. Utilization would be player-centric. Yes, of course, they'd have certain things that they'd want to achieve as a team, not least of which would be winning. But when it comes to the individual player, they would manage and instruct to the player's strengths. So Chavis, plain and simple, doesn't fit here. He doesn't fit with this hitting coach. He doesn't fit with this team and what they want to do. So while they don't have other options at first base, and they sure didn't while Yoshi was still here, they're going to keep basically just putting up with him because they don't take him seriously. Even though he's 27 years old, even though he's as enthusiastic, maybe more enthusiastic than anybody else on the team. If you saw his nutty celebration after the win yesterday, he was the hitter in the box when the wild pitch went by, and you would think he had just knocked one into the river from the way he reacted. Uh, they they just don't have anything there. And what are they going to do? Say that? You know, I, I'm trying to give you the most honest answer that I can, and I'll repeat that this is my belief, not something that I've heard from the team. Someday, maybe Chavis will find his team. This ain't it. Now, for me, this is it for a little bit. I am taking my son, Marco, who's 18 years old, overseas on a bit of a pilgrimage more than a vacation. Uh, he's never been to Serbia where my ancestors are from. I'm born and raised in Pittsburgh, but we still have a lot of family, uncles, aunts, cousins, and so forth in the Belgrade area and just to the north of that. I haven't been able to be back in 20 years, and since he's only 18, he's never been there. We wanted to do this before the pandemic. We're going to do it now. We're flying to London later tonight. We're going to stay there for about a day and a half and then make over to Eastern Europe for the main part of the trip. This show will be back not Monday, but the following Monday. I'm taking all of next week off. Why am I doing that instead of recording shows or even doing them from over there? I'm going to be honest with you. Ever since DK Pittsburgh Sports was formed eight years ago, I took one very, very brief vacation with my family that encompassed five days where we puddle jumped really 
from Reykjavik, Iceland to London to Paris and then back to London and then back to Reykjavik and then back to Pittsburgh. It was really crazy, but it never felt like a vacation. We were just on fire all the time. This this one's going to be different. When we were in Reykjavik, when we first got there and we got to the hotel and they didn't have a room for us right away, I sat in the lobby and I opened up my laptop and my son, who was a good bit younger at the time, saw this and he started crying and he said, really, really, you're even going to work here? And I closed the laptop and I promised myself that I'd never do that again on a vacation because it's literally all I do. It's all he ever sees. It's all he's ever seen. And this is going to be different. So yeah, and I'm going to take the week off and I'm really, really going to take the week off. And you know what? When I come back, I'm going to be really, really ready to do all three of the daily shots again. Thanks so much for listening to this show. Thank you for supporting it. And we will connect again on the 15th of August. Take care of yourself.